Thank you to David for leading us and uh, the musicians and singers uh, for helping us to, to worship God as we, we sang his praise. Let's pray as we come to this part of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we believe that all those years ago, you came and spoke to Isaiah, to, to Jeremiah, and gave him words uh, that he was to pass on uh, to your people. Thank you that your spirit, who was alive and at work then, is alive here today. And thank you that your spirit's ready now to take these words and make them alive and new to us here today. So help us uh, to hear you and understand you and pay attention to you in all that we hear this evening. Amen. It's one of the characteristics of our modern culture that it moves forward at such a breakneck speed that we don't often get a chance to, to think about how things have changed. Times have changed, even in my very, very short lifetime. Um, I grew up with three television channels. Um, when, in 1982, Channel 4 was launched, most of us wondered how on earth we would manage to keep up with these multiple uh, platforms of television viewing. Uh, when I was young, I did have a concept of a mobile, but it was a sort of flimsy type of classroom that was built on the playground in my school in a time when educational investment was at an all-time low. Nobody talked in those days about having a landline because that's what everybody had. And at the end of the landline was a good, healthy-sized box of a thing stuck onto the wall with a big strapping dial in the middle of it. And if I remember right, it took about five minutes to dial a six-digit number because you put your finger in, you wound it up this way, and then it came all the way back. And you had to go to it. it there was no negotiation. It was there. You heard it, and you went... And there was a lot of shouting around the house trying to get the person who the phone call was for. Times have changed. I mean, I remember when I was young, Dallas was on TV on a Wednesday night. Oh, it's on TV on a Wednesday night again. If times have changed in our society in general, then I think they've certainly changed for the people of God and in the church. There was a time in our culture when most people went to church and I think you would have thought twice about scheduling anything on a Sunday morning if you wanted to draw any sort of a crowd to it because you, you knew you couldn't compete with, with church. Churches were full. Sundays were special. Uh, so families, after they'd gone to church, maybe had dinners together maybe went out for a walk or went visiting with relatives and friends. There was a time when churches were the hub of the social life of their community. Uh, churches were the place where, where people were married, almost everyone. 
who was married would have been married in the church. Their children would have come along to Sunday school and other children's activities. This is the place where they played badminton and bowled and went to women's gatherings together. So to sum it all up, there was a time when Britain was truly or at least appeared to be truly a Christian country. British values were for the most part Christian values. They were expressed in our laws, in our holidays. There was a time not very long ago when Christians felt right at home in British culture. But those aren't these times. Many older Christians will hardly recognize the Britain of today as the country that they grew up in. Because generally people don't go to church anymore. Sunday morning traffic is as likely to be headed to the gym or a cafe as to church. The statistic in the UK of church attendance, I think, is hitting round about the 10% mark. It might have dropped below that now. And that, by the way, includes anybody who comes to church once a month. Um, that would be about 10% of the British population. A more local um, expression of how things have changed. Um, I know a statistic from our own Presbyterian church in East Belfast that in 2003, when I first came to this part of the city, there were about 11,000 families who were associated with Presbyterian churches. Uh, that number has dropped by now below 8,000. Uh, so that sounds like around about a third have gone missing in eight years. And when you bear in mind that, that the remaining families, uh, if you go and visit the churches of East Belfast, you'll find that a lot of those are maybe uh, pensioner households. Uh, then you'll see that church going, even in our own denomination at a local level, is in a massive decline. Sundays aren't special anymore, are they? Not really. 1994 saw the introduction of Sunday trading. Uh, I would imagine for most people, Sunday is not very different from Saturday, the day before it. Part of a homogenous kind of a weekend. People are as likely to be in Tesco and Victoria Square on a Sunday as any other day. And the churches that we used to see as the hub of the local community, well, they're closing and being turned into restaurants or carpet warehouses. To sum it up, Britain, with its rich heritage in recent times of Christian faith, seems intent on cutting its ties with that heritage. It seems that British values are changing and are less and less Christian values. And some of our most recent laws demonstrate that in a pretty stark way. So in recent times, we have laws that outlaw a nurse from wearing a cross around her neck in work. And at the same time, laws on their way to redefine marriage as no longer between a man and a woman, but also, if desired, between two men and two women. It's hard to make a case anymore, I think, for Britain to be a Christian country. It might be safer to say that it has a Christian heritage. So Christians who once felt so at home 
in British culture are beginning to feel like strangers in their own land. It seems to me that there are a couple of different ways in which we might or or are already responding to this. Uh, One, on the one hand, we can choose to ignore the changes that are taking place around us and just carry on as we've always done. We can take the view that the way we've been living for God in the past was good enough for our parents and it's good enough for us. No matter how much society around us changes, we won't change. Why should we? We were right all along. Avoidance. That's one way of dealing with the changes that have been taking place around us. But there's another way. Engagement. Paying attention to what God has been doing, to what God is doing, and prayerfully trying to discern what God wants us to do in the present and in the future. I won't, it, it won't surprise you, I hope, uh, whenever I say and suggest that we take the second approach. I believe that the British church, the European church, the church of the Western world needs to return to the living God to give ourselves to his word and to prayer and we need to discern what God is doing in these times when the whole landscape around us is so dramatically changed. When I thought about how we might listen to God and to discern what is well for us in this matter might be, I was soon drawn to the book of Jeremiah. As soon as I was drawn to it, I wanted to run away from it for all sorts of reasons. I'm not selling this very well, but, but I'm, I'm being honest with you. Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible after the Psalms. It's complex in its structure, quite difficult to follow. There's a mixture of narratives, of prophecy, Jeremiah's own laments, other types of literature, and they're all arranged in an order that nobody can quite discern. So I recoiled at first from preaching Jeremiah, but in the end, I couldn't let go of it or felt in the end almost like it wasn't going to let go of me. So we're going to study this book of Jeremiah together because it's a record of God's word to his people when they experienced an incredible societal change and upheaval, a time that resulted finally in exile. I believe that the church in Britain today is going into exile. We're no longer the mainstream of our culture. We've been pushed away out to the edge. And rather than bemoaning that fact, rather than harking back to the good old days, I believe God's calling us to listen to him and to learn how to live in the new landscape that he's given us. If we're going to understand Jeremiah, we're going to have to try and understand a little bit of the times in which he lived. So those first three verses um, give us a bit of a framework for the history, uh, the context for the whole book. And I'm going to take a few minutes to try and explain to you 
what was going on in Jeremiah's times. We're told in verse 2 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Jeremiah is a prophet during the life, really, of three of Judah's kings. Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. What do we know about these guys? Josiah was Judah's best ever king. That's what the writer of 2 Kings tells us. Chapter 23, verse 23 of 2 Kings. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and his soul and with all his strength. Here he is, best king Israel ever had. He went onto the throne in round about 640 BC at the ripe old age of eight. So it's quite a record to have to say that you're Judah's best ever king uh, when you started out a year younger than Patrick, my son, Uh, I can't quite picture that, but in his 31-year reign, he cleaned up and reformed Judah, which was in in a bad state before his time. He also managed to get them out from under the oppression of Assyria, but he died finally in battle with the Egyptians around about 609 B.C., to understand a little of what's going on with, with Josiah and why he's important, we've got to know how the, the world worked in those days. The superpowers of the time basically came, conquered, but let you stay in your land so that you harvested your crops and they taxed it and took it all away. It was called paying tribute and you were a vassal, a vassal state. So when Josiah came to power, Israel was a vassal state of the superpower of their time, Assyria. And Josiah had helped them to come out from under the rule of Assyria. The other thing that Josiah is famous for is this purifying of Israel. And there's a famous account of that in 2 Kings chapter 22. We're told that Josiah in the 18th year of his reign was making repairs on the temple complex. Maybe it was a bit like this place was over the summer, scaffolding all over the place and dust, work being done to the place. But they found a scroll, we're told, of the law of the Lord in the temple of the Lord. Don't know exactly what the scroll was, but the scholars think it was some early part of the book of Deuteronomy. And that would make sense because Josiah spent his later years challenging idolatry, and the worship of many gods. And those are big themes in the book of Deuteronomy. Josiah did a great job, and we've already read that record of his life, that assessment that said he was the greatest king Judah ever had. But by the time Jeremiah begins his ministry, it seems that any good was already dissipating. And Jeremiah had to fight the same battles all over again. So Josiah is the first of the three kings in Jeremiah's time as a prophet. 
When Josiah died, his only son Jehoahaz uh, became king, or sorry, the people made his son Jehoahaz king in his place. He lasted for all of three months before the Egyptians replaced him with his older brother, Eliakim. Eliakim was put on the throne of Judah by the Egyptians so that he could rule with Egyptian policy. And Egypt were so much pulling the strings that they even changed the guy's name. By the way, that's, that's very symbolic. If you, if you have the power to change a guy's name, that shows who's boss. Egypt is boss. Eliakim's name becomes Jehoiakim. He's a puppet king of Egypt on the throne of Judah. Jehoiakim's reign lasted for 11 years and Jeremiah opposed him from day one till the very last day. There was nothing in Jehoiakim's reign that Jeremiah could support. It was during Jehoiakim's reign that Egypt was defeated by another new superpower, the rising superpower of Babylon. So Jehoiakim for the first while paid tribute to Nebuchadnezzar and served him for three years, now as a vassal to Babylon. And when Jehoiakim rebelled against the Babylonian rule, Nebuchadnezzar started a campaign against Jehoiakim and Judah. So Jehoiakim died in 598 BC with the Babylonian army at the gate of Jerusalem. We're told in verse 3 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Before we get to Zedekiah, history tells us that Jehoiakim was succeeded by his son Jehoiachin. Lasted for all of three months. Three months after he came to the throne, he surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and he was taken along to Babylon in a first wave of exile. And then Nebuchadnezzar did much the same as Egypt had done before him. He appointed Mataniah, another son of Josiah, as the next puppet king. And again, to show who's boss, he changed his name to Zedekiah. And hence the reference in chapter 1, verse 3 to Zedekiah. His reign lasted for 11 years. Eventually, Zedekiah conspired against Nebuchadnezzar. If you know your world history, you'll know that conspiring against Nebuchadnezzar is not a good idea. Nebuchadnezzar marched his army to the gates of Jerusalem and laid siege to the city. Two years, the city resisted the siege. But in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the city fell. Zedekiah was captured, blinded, and taken to Babylon. The city was burned. The temple of God was looted. And thousands more were taken into exile. This was the end. Wind back to what you know of the story of the people of God rescued from slavery in Egypt that they might be taken to a promised land, a place flowing with milk and honey where they would be God's people and a light to the nations. Judah defeated. Israel 
Jerusalem destroyed and the temple looted and the people dragged off into exile. These 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry cover some of the most tumultuous in the history of God's people. Whenever Jeremiah begins his ministry, it's a time of relative prosperity, the early time of Josiah. And by the time the prophecies are finished, God's people have reached rock bottom. We began this evening by talking about changing times. We thought about how Britain isn't what it used to be for the people of God. Everything that God had promised this people was being taken from them, their king, their land, their temple. And it was during this period as people in exile that they sang a song that we have come to know very well, thanks to Boney M. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion, that's Jerusalem. Our city, our temple, our king, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? The psalmist asked. Everything they knew was gone. Everything they knew about how to be God's people had been taken away from them. And it was into this context that God sent Jeremiah. I couldn't help but think as David read chapter 1, that I'm glad I'm not Jeremiah. When you hear what God says to him, the job description, the invitation, but we'll come to that next week. God's sending a prophet into this context, to this people at this time. He's chosen a priest from Anathoth, a village three miles north of Jerusalem. This is a priestly village. The guys in this village know the history and the story of Israel. This guy's well qualified to bring God's word to his people. What's the message going to be? I just want to spend the last few minutes giving you a few ideas of what to look out for as we hear the prophet preparing us for the exile. And I want you to listen to see whether these themes might be important themes for us today. This prophecy wasn't written for us, not not directly, and I'm not going to act as though it is, But, but let's listen and see if any of these themes resonate. Jeremiah's message was a message of sin. He had to talk to the people of God about sin. He challenged them that they refused to think, that they refused to listen to God, that they were infatuated with other gods and had become entangled in some deep-seated evil. There's one aspect of Jeremiah's message. What about this next one? Does it resonate? Jeremiah's message was one of judgment. Because of the sins of God's people, God's judgment became a moral and a logical necessity. It had to fall.
But it was never in God's mind to wipe his people out, even his judgment, Jeremiah teaches us, would be controlled and limited. What place is there to think about God's judgment in the modern church? Jeremiah spoke about the people's sins and about God's judgment because he had a prophetic calling to call people to repentance. He called Israel to stop and to think about what they were doing. He urged them to enter a plea of guilty, to prove their sincerity, to come home to God. Do we believe in corporate repentance? Might it be that the church in Ulster has some things to think about in terms of corporate repentance? Maybe. Jeremiah's message, yes, it's one of sin, it's one of judgment and it's one of repentance, but it's one of grace. There are some beautiful, beautiful images in here. Uh, and we'll see them as we go along. We'll see some of them. Of how God speaks of his love for his people. Do you know what he calls them? He calls them a work of art that he put his hand to. He calls them a garment that he wants to wear to show his beauty to the world. He talks about them as a family that he loves with an everlasting love. She's a wife who's been unfaithful to him that he wants to win back. She's a wayward daughter. Israel is like a rebellious son, the Lord says, but still, even in his rebellion, he's the apple of his eye. This is how God speaks of Israel through the prophet. They don't deserve any of this, but by God's grace, it's how God sees it. And finally, Jeremiah's message is one of salvation. In a message for people headed for judgment, for people living in exile, God says some of the most beautiful words in the whole of Scripture and some of these some of us have learned because we find them so life-giving. In a letter to the first wave of exiles, to people who'd been dragged from their homes, from, do you understand that for, for a pers- a, the people of God to be taken into exile is to be taken out of their faith? Everything that they knew was about the temple. Everything they knew was about the land. Everything... And they'd been taken out of that. It had all been taken away. And the Lord says these words to them. He tells Jeremiah, tell these people, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's not all over yet. And God speaks into their bleak present about a future, a different way of dealing with his people that's coming, a new covenant. And he says, 
I'll put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the greatest to the least. Folks, we're going to spend some time over the next weeks learning from God's words through the prophet Jeremiah. I've asked you to consider how much we identify with the situation that Jeremiah addressed. Is the church going into exile? I think it is. Is it possible that we we might need to listen to some hard words about sin and God's necessary judgment and to hear his call to repentance and hear it for us? I think it's possible. But when we read this part of God's word, we're going to discover that even when God's people are at rock bottom, even when the lights have been switched off and it appears that nobody is left at home, that God's grace is at work. His salvation is is rising from beneath and he's waiting to catch us up in it. Let's pray. Father God, there are parts of your word that don't easily fit with our frothy entertainment age. They ask uncomfortable questions of us. We hear your voice saying things that we'd rather not hear. Lord, we pray that you would make us people of your word, people who are are willing to hear even the hard parts so that we might know your heart and your mind in its entirety and that we might live in step with you. Lord, help us not to fear this message you're going to bring us through your word in the prophet Jeremiah. Help us to hunger for it, to know the truth about ourselves, about your church and about this land. Help us to hunger for that truth that we might be cleansed and purified and live more and more for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.